Welcome to Can, Can We, we talk, talk About this? this? I'm your host, Amberly from The Power of Birth. And I'm your producer, Rajelle from Be Designs. And together we created this podcast to talk about women's health and the things that really matter. We have a real passion and focus on women's health and wellness and overall emphasize the importance of talking about maternal health. We chat to experts and continue sharing your stories. We're here to start the conversation, raise awareness, spread the word, call out gaps in the system and implicit biases. And we hope you learn something or even if you're just screaming yes the entire podcast. This is not a place for small talk. We're about real talk. And when we know better, we do better. And we challenge you to start this conversation elsewhere. Did you know you can find further resources on thepowerofbirth.net via the printable resources tab that includes things like a hospital bag checklist, postpartum toolbox, pelvic health information, and so much more. Don't forget while you're there to subscribe to thepowerofbirth.net for your free printable motherhood affirmations. I hope you love them as much as I do. Brianna, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Now. I am very curious to know about your motherhood journey. We know each other a little bit. We have some social circles and things, and you have written your story to me before, but I did feel that it was so worthy of a podcast episode. So I'm really excited to have you on and hear more about it. So tell me, how was your fertility journey and how did you feel about becoming a mother? Yeah, thank you. That's a really nice way to say that I wrote a way too long of a story for Instagram. <laughs> um, <laughs> there, there was a lot to it. So I have a little girl. She's seven months old. Uh, but before I fell pregnant with her, I was actually, uh, I had a, another pregnancy and that started in 2021. Um, my husband and I, we've always known that we wanted to have kids. Um it's just for us, I think a big part of feeling fulfilled in our lives. It, it's always been a goal of ours to have a family. And so that was always on the cards and we just, we always knew that that was the case. And I am one of four and my husband's one of eight. So we didn't really think too much about fertility. Um, it, you know, didn't really cross our minds when you come from that many children. It's not something you really tend to question and we decided that we wanted to fall pregnant and we fell pregnant straight away with that first pregnancy it was funny I my husband uh once we decided that we were going to start trying and we got the prenatals and you know all that excitement my husband was super eager and I was like look you need to calm down it can take easily six months for us at our age like it's quite normal to take a little bit of time. It doesn't usually just happen straight off the bat. So like you need to chill out. <laughs> and uh, he he just, you know, he was excited, but kind of calmed down a little bit after I told him that. Uh, and I mean, I wasn't the greatest at taking my own advice because I was very excited as well. <laughs> and the month passed and I had done a pregnancy test and it came back negative and I was a little disappointed, but I was like, oh, you know, first month it happens, uh, you know, just look forward to next month. Um, and I started having cramping and I was like, oh yeah, my period's coming, no worries. Uh, and I remember a couple of days later, I was like, I'm still having cramps, but I haven't got my period, which is really strange. And I did a test and it was positive. Uh, and apparently that could be a normal thing with early pregnancy, getting cramps, which I didn't know about. And 
I was super excited. I was shocked because I had gotten that negative test earlier uh, and we were pregnant. And I remember you hear about everyone doing like these really cute pregnancy announcements to their spouses and significant others. And I was just too excited. I just walked out with the positive pregnancy test to Daniel um, and told him because I was just so excited. And as the day went on, I was still having cramps and, you know, I just kind of chalked that up to normal. But the next day my cramps had gotten pretty intense. And so I actually called 13 Health and spoke to them about it. And they recommended that I see a doctor. And I went and saw a doctor probably about like 36 hours after getting that positive test uh, and just let him know like I've tested positive but I've got these really like painful cramps and he told me like you know cramping can be normal at the start uh, but it can also signify something's wrong so he did an assessment on me and referred me for an ultrasound just to make sure that there was no ectopic pregnancy and that wasn't my cramping subsided everything was fine and I remember feeling really dramatic at the doctors because I had started to tear up as I told him that I was cramping. I had known that I was pregnant for a whole 36 hours but I was already so afraid of something bad happening. Um, I I mean we hadn't tried for long but I loved that baby instantly and I can't Mm -hmm. really describe it. I think a lot of women are like that as soon as they know that pregnant there's that connection and that joy and that excitement and it's indescribable really and that's how I felt so I mean thankfully I had a really great doctor who was really compassionate and didn't tell me that I was being dramatic or anything like that Um, and he was really quite lovely to deal with Uh, and that was the start of my pregnancy and we went forward we had the six-week checkup everything was great baby's heart rate was normal and I didn't think much of it uh that's you know you get a positive pregnancy test and you have a baby and that's how it's always come across to me uh and I didn't yeah I didn't think much of it and we volunteered for a an ultrasound education course um, where they're teaching sonographers uh, how to scan like especially ER doctors so I volunteered for that because it was a free ultrasound where I get to see my baby and I remember the instructor did a scan first and she just said oh, I'm just gonna have a quick scan and make sure that everything's okay before having all the other people come in and have a have a look and I was like oh yeah of course and I didn't even think anything like didn't think about it not being okay I was like yeah no worries and everything was fine and we had it was quite special actually we had about an hour of people scanning and measuring the baby and we got to watch uh him or her on the screen I always think of it how far along were you at this point uh so I was 10 weeks and two days according to the measurements um so baby had gone from you know, just looking like a little blimp on an ultrasound to starting to look a bit more like a baby. And it was just exciting. It was exciting to see and to just know that things were okay. And that was really special. And I continued on with my pregnancy. We didn't think much of it. And I got to 14 weeks and we announced because, you know, we're in the safe zone like everyone talks about. And just things seem to be going well we I'm a big planner so 
we had purchased a pram, we had gotten the car seat, we had gotten the crib, everything, big, big item I had sorted. It was more so the little nitty gritty details that I was kind of waiting to find out the gender to figure out. Um, and yeah, I, we were having a baby uh, and I didn't think anything differently. And so we just went about planning life around expecting our baby we announced and we were excited uh, we had a lot of friends and family that were excited for us and things had just been progressing as normal and then I started to have a little bit of spotting and it was very 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 little amount of spotting and I know that that can be really quite normal and I did the whole you know diving into google and searching and making sure and everything said yep usually pretty normal and anyway, I went about my day and my spotting had, hadn't gone away. So I booked a doctor's appointment for the next day. It was the next time my doctor was available uh, just to speak and just to check and clarify that that was all good. And the next day when I woke up, my spotting had increased and it was actually bright red. It was no longer just spotting. And that's when I started to freak out. <laughs> And I woke my husband up and I said, hey, I think we need to go to the doctors, uh, sorry, to the ER and to see what's going on. And I made him go to the store and buy pads for me. And that was kind of where it started to sink in, where oh, I don't know if everything's okay. And I was trying really hard mm. to be optimistic. Uh, my family... Uh, my genetic family doesn't really have any history or much history of miscarriage. Everyone's pregnancies have been very uneventful. So I just, you know, kind of held on to that fact and I remembered that everything was fine at the 10 week ultrasound. And we just went ahead to the doctor, uh, sorry, to the ER. And when I got to the triage nurse, that's when it kind of sank in and I told her how far along I was and started crying just at the fact that I was spotting and she was lovely thankfully um because sometimes you can just get some awful <laughs> triage nurses but she was really mm. lovely and compassionate to me and I took a seat and just waited in the waiting room and it felt like forever it was honestly probably only 45 minutes to an hour which is nothing in the terms of an Australian waiting room and Thankfully, they let Daniel come in with me because this was January of 2021 and COVID was at its peak because the borders had just opened and I was really anxious that I'd have to go in and do this this visit by myself. But thankfully, they let Daniel in and that was such a relief. Um, and so we went in and I had to have a... Um, a pelvic examination with a speculum uh, uh, just to confirm that the bleeding was coming from the cervix so they did that that's you know I'm sure anyone that's had that can say that that is incredibly unpleasant especially if it's done by ER staff it's it's not enjoyable mm. <laughs> um, had that and they did confirm that the bleeding was coming from the the uterus um, and it uh, was coming out the cervix and so we waited for a bedside ultrasound and it felt like forever and it, you know it was a few hours where we were waiting and the lady came by 
and started the ultrasound the screen wasn't facing me and I'm a nosy person I want to see everything I I want to know and the screen was deliberately not facing me and she's doing the scan and I'm trying to read hers and the doctor's expression trying to get any information that I can based on what I can see and there was just nothing and she asked me she's like oh when did you have your last scan and I said 10 weeks two days and she said how far along are you now and I was at the time 14 weeks two days and the sonographer her eyes teared up instantly and that was more confirmation than words could have been and I knew right then that things weren't okay and she confirmed that the baby no longer had a heartbeat and the baby was actually still measuring 10 weeks and two days uh oh wow that was yeah so it was crushing it was I don't know after we had that ultrasound I don't know how much longer if it was minutes hours I don't know how much longer my baby Mm. lived after that and that was really shattering to think that everything was fine and I trusted my body my symptoms had started to fade but that's pretty normal as you go into the first like into the second trimester so I didn't really think anything of it and my pregnancy had been completely normal and then all of a sudden my world changed um and my husband and I we were heartbroken we sobbed in that hospital room and we sobbed I actually ran out of tissues and had to go to the nurse station and ask if I could get another box of tissues and I had three nurses jump up like as if it was the most important thing and rush to get me tissues which was amazing I mean the ER sees so many miscarriages unfortunately they're really common um, but they were so lovely and they really took care of me which was great Um, the doctor came in and told me what my options were and that was something that I had never even thought of I didn't know didn't know much about miscarriage people don't talk about it and it's apparently really common about one in four women and I knew of a few friends that had had miscarriages I didn't know them when they went through theirs and I didn't know what the process was and I remember the doctor telling me you know, you have options of just letting it pass naturally. You have options to take a medication to help you, or you can have a DNC. And I remember she explained it really well. I could tell that she had explained it really well, but it just wasn't sinking in. My head was so empty at that time. And thankfully, she gave me a handout so I could read it because I just, none of it was absorbing. Mm. Um, and I talked with my husband and I said, oh, I think a DNC would probably be best. Uh, just because there's obviously complicated like there's pros and cons to what whichever method you go about um, choosing and so yeah I, I opted for a DNC and so I was kneel by mouth in in the hospital and they were waiting for uh, someone from gyno to to come by and I waited 12 hours so you in the were hospital. prepared to do it Oh, wow. Like you were prepared to do it that day. Well, they didn't know if they would have the opportunity. A DNC doesn't take very long. Um, and they kind of oftentimes just slot you in between a major surgery. And mm. so I was told to go kneel by mouth in case that it was going to happen. So I'd walked in to get checked in on. I walked in pregnant 
and then I was going to potentially walk out not and so and they ended up the someone from gyno came by and spoke with me and explained my options and they said look unfortunately we don't have the ability to get you in for a dnc today uh it was a thursday that i was in there and they told me that they wouldn't be able to get me in until monday for a dnc and so that was a little bit I don't know how to explain it. It was a little bit mixed emotions because uh, part of me, as soon as I knew that my baby had passed, it was really painful to know that my body was still holding on. I felt like a tomb for my baby's body. And that was really, really difficult to process. And so they sent me home. They did tell me that if I changed my mind on Friday and decided that I wanted to get medication to speed things along, then I could. And they told me to watch out for excess bleeding. And I had the worst headache. I never cried that much in my life. Um, went home and slept. And I woke up the next day and I decided, I just want this to pass. Like this is, I felt so empty. And it killed me knowing that my body, it felt like my body had betrayed me. I had been pregnant and things had been seeming fine. And my body hadn't told me that nothing, like that something was wrong. And it was described as a mis- miscarriage mm. because of that, um, where your body just continues as if it is pregnant. But it's not. It's The pregnancy is no longer progressing. And... I I felt betrayed by my own body. I felt like I couldn't escape. And I went to the GP and asked them for medication, explained my story, which, you know, was a lot um, just emotionally. And she told me, look, I'm really sorry that the hospital told you that I could give you this medication, but only certain GPs are able to prescribe it. I don't know why they told you that just any GP can. I'm, I'm really sorry. Like, I know that's really traumatic. And it, by then it was like 3.30 on a Friday and she said my recommendation would just be to wait until Monday for your DNC. And so I left a bit bummed and just went home. And I started to feel a bit more cramping. Sorry, my bleeding had really stopped actually once I, for the most part, once I had gotten and seeing the doctors in the ER, it pretty much stopped. Um, it was just a little bit of spotting here and there. And so I just thought, yeah, my body's just not going to do it on its own. And that's why I'd sought the medication. And later that night, I started to have cramping. And I thought, oh, you know, don't get your hopes up. Like, maybe your body's doing it, but don't don't get your hopes up. You've got your DNC planned for Monday. And you'll know that at least Monday things will be sorted. And I went to bed and I woke up 4.30 in the morning the next day with quite intense cramping. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe things are moving along. Went to the bathroom and there was a significant, significantly more blood. And so I went and laid down, got comfy as I could. And my cramping just intensified and 10 minutes passed and I stood up to go to the bathroom again and I just felt this gush and I woke Daniel up and I told him you need to come to the bathroom with me 
if I keep losing lots and lots of blood, you're going to have to call an ambulance. I don't want to pass out and you not know, so come with me. And I went to the bathroom and I was just gushing what turns out to be blood and it was a mix of blood and amniotic fluid and it happened mm. really quickly and like most women do, I miscarried in, on the toilet and in the couple of days leading up to this, I had been doing a lot of reading about what it was like to, what's, what it's like to miscarry, what to expect and I think it was actually an article from Tiny Hearts. She was really vulnerable and it explained what it was like to miscarry at home and thankfully that kind of helped me know what to expect. Um, mm. And so I was bleeding and I, because my baby had technically had passed a month before I actually miscarried, I had read a lot of things that you might see fetal pieces but your baby often won't be whole and so I was worried about how traumatic that might be uh, but my baby actually was whole which was a real shock to me and the experience itself of actually miscarrying after I knew that my baby had passed for me that itself wasn't too traumatic and it actually felt like a relief it felt like a relief to no longer be carrying around a baby that had passed. Um, it felt mm. like a relief that my body had done what it needed to do. And I got a chance to see my baby, which was really special to me. And I didn't think that I'd get that opportunity. I wouldn't have had it with a DNC. And I remember looking down at my baby and he fit in the palm of my hand along between my pinky finger and my middle finger and still a little alien-like as they are in those those first few weeks uh, but the detail that I could see I could see the nail on his big toe and he just seemed perfect to me and there was an immense amount of closure that came with being able to hold him and just look at him and it was sweet but it was heartbreaking at the same time it was hard to look at my baby and to know that we would never actually meet um, and like to be holding a baby that you knew was your baby but to know that you'd never actually meet in spirit I guess uh, was a bit heartbreaking uh, and my bleeding was heavy for a little bit but it subsided so I didn't end up having to go to the hospital again which was great and I just kind of finished up the day just kind of keeping an eye on myself being gentle with myself and we had to bury our baby that day and I was really grateful that I had a body to bury like that gave me a lot of closure um I know for some women that that that's really traumatic but I don't know why for me it really helped but it was so difficult to actually bury my baby and we decided that we were going to mm. pop our baby in a in a pot and and plant a desert rose over the top. I told my husband, I was like, we need to get a plant that I know is not going to die easily because if the plant dies, then I'm just going to be wrecked all over again. It's going to be like going through <laughs> this again. So I was terrified of killing the plant. So we looked for something that was really hardy and I actually wrote in my journal. I'd kind of forgotten about it. but um the desert rose is meant to 
symbolize resilience in hard times and we kind of felt like that was appropriate Mm. for us in our situation and so we buried our baby and actually I needed my husband to put the first part of dirt on because I just couldn't do it I couldn't bring myself to to do it I knew that I would never see my baby again and that was really hard um I took a photo I'm really glad I I only got the one photo but I did take a photo so that I could look back on and I'm so glad that I did that that I had the the forethought to do that because I've you know been able to look back but it was hard to know that I'd never see my baby in the flesh again um and yeah it was just a really difficult time and my body seemed like it had done what it needed to do and it seemed like things were going okay. I cancelled my DNC thinking I no longer needed it and I planned to return back to work on the Wednesday and I was getting ready no on the Tuesday night. Well, most women, you only get two days off of work actually if you miscarry. Um mm. That's all that's really allowed. Thankfully, I worked in a medical center and they were really understanding. And it's I so kind of insane wanted... to me, right? Oh, sorry to cut you off there. No, um, you're fine. Like, I was just thinking as you were describing the experience of what a miscarriage feels or looks like, like there's so many parallels to birth. Like it's not identical, obviously, but there's so many parallels. And oh, I've yeah, often heard... Both- yeah, well, I've often heard people like say like I birthed my baby like when they miscarry. Yeah, um, yeah and I, I completely understand why people would say that. Um, and then I was thinking as well just when you were talking about, you know, closure and the burial and things like that, I always find burials like so confronting anyway. So knowing that this like things just weren't meant to be that way and now you're burying your baby like that's yeah like that's so hard there probably are no words to describe that and I would say that about any gestational age um oh definitely yeah I don't really think that that necessarily matters um people may feel differently about that but yeah it's so interesting talking to so many women having miscarriages or um, premature labors and deaths and like, or even stillbirths and things. And like a lot of how they describe that they feel is the same. And so I'm just like, yeah, Yeah. gestational age doesn't really matter. I don't think it does. Like, I mean, everyone's different for me. As soon as I found out I was pregnant, I had a connection like 36 Mm. hours into finding out I was pregnant and I was so afraid of something going wrong. Um, like that was my baby. And I just assumed I was naive and I just assumed if you get a positive pregnancy test you have a baby and I didn't think anything of it and I wish I could go back in time and be that naive again uh, because I feel like it was kind of beautiful bliss just completely unaware and it was easy Mm. no one wants to live in a world where babies die and it's a harsh reality and it's really difficult. And like I said, thankfully my work was really understanding. And because I had gotten to that safe period, quote mm. unquote, um, and we had announced people knew about it. So I didn't 
I felt lucky in that sense because a lot of people go through this and no one knows that they are yeah. going through it. There's a big stigma about announcing early, which I fully disagree with after yeah. going through my whole process. I, I totally agree I think with people you. need that support. Um, yeah. I mean, to each their own, but for me, that was really valuable to have. So and how were those conversations? Did you announce a loss or? Yeah, so that was something that we had to discuss how are we going to do it and we had announced on social media that we were pregnant and I told my husband it's going to be hard but we just need to announce on social media that I've miscarried I said I couldn't go through having individual people come up and ask me how my pregnancy is going Mm. I just knew that that would be too painful and I would break down with every conversation and that would be so much harder so we just put up a post and that was the easiest thing for us to do and I mean it was kind of like ripping off a band-aid it hurt but it was just the quickest way to get it done and there was a lot of healing in that I had a lot of women reach out to me actually that I had no idea that I'd had multiple miscarriages or had had a miscarriage and there was something very healing about finding out that it happens like you don't want it to happen often but it's comforting to know that you're not alone and Mm. there were some women who had never actually even told anyone that they had miscarried and they had messaged me saying look I've miscarried I know what it's like and you know you you just kind of mourn together and that was heartbreaking and beautiful at the same time and yeah so that's what what we decided to do and that's what worked for us anyway on the Tuesday night I started um, bleeding heavily again and went to the ER and I waited hours and hours in the ER gushing blood so that was delightful really (laughs) Um, finally I got seen and they said look it's probably like your bleeding has slowed down now it's probably best if you just go home and tomorrow make an appointment to get an ultrasound to see if there's any retained products. And so went home and... Even the language, the eh? retained products? Yeah, products of conception. It's how it's written down. It's how mm. it's discussed. It's Yeah, wow. so it's it's very removed. It's It was, you know, mm. difficult to process... And it was confronting as well while I was waiting in the ER. There was a woman who was obviously pregnant who sat down and I remember just hoping and praying that whatever she was in there for wasn't for her baby because I just, I wouldn't have wished the feeling and the experience that I was going through on anyone and I was just so worried for her. And now in hindsight, I would have known with how far along she would have been that if there was any issues, she would have presented to labor and delivery. But I just remember being so worried for her. And, yeah, it it just, like, fully consumed my thoughts. And Mm -hmm. so I had to call around and book in for an ultrasound, and I got in. It was the same room that we had seen my baby's heartbeat for the first time. So going into that room was really confronting. And the sonographer said that he couldn't state anything, but I watched him measure things on the screen. And I was heartbroken. I was so angry with myself. I was so angry at my body. My body couldn't have carried on with a healthy pregnancy and now it wasn't miscarrying properly. And I felt so much anger and I was just distraught. I went home and just sobbed 
and I had another DNC booked in for the Friday and it felt so frustrating because I thought I was putting this behind me I thought I could start to move forward and then just to have this setback and to have to have a DNC anyway felt so frustrating and I was so anxious I had never had a surgery before and you have to go under for a DNC and that scared me I know I'm I'm studying my nursing so I know that things medically don't always go to plan that there's always risks and once you're on the bad side of a statistic I think it's really hard to think that you're going to have a good outcome and I was so terrified mm. you know I had to sign away that I knew that potentially a DNC could puncture my uterus and it could have lasting consequences so that was terrifying um, to think that that pregnancy might have been my first and my last and that my dream of having children might have just been gone and it was really mm. confronting and really scary and I mean those those stats are very very low the risk is very low they follow a procedure that they know is you know best practice but it's still it's it was the most vulnerable I think I've ever been and I went in for my DNC on the Friday and it was hard because they asked you the pre-surgery questions and they asked, are you pregnant? And I said, I don't know how to answer that. I miscarried at home, but I'm not not pregnant. That's why I need the DNC. Mm. I, and it was really hard. I, I genuinely, even to this day, don't know what the right answer was. Yes and no, you know. So, and as part of surgery checkups, they had to keep asking me, okay, you know what you're here for. Can you please say it to me? And that's just part of a check so that you go in for a surgery and you have the surgery that you're going in for. And I had the pre-checks and then I had to go to the OR and my husband obviously couldn't come with. And so that was just an added layer of vulnerability. I was now by myself in a room full of strangers and I remember them doing the final check and asking me, do you know what you're here for? And I just broke down and I just said, miscarriage, like I lost my baby. And I had, I don't know if they were a nurse, some sort of medical professional. He just held my hand and he said, it's okay. We're looking after you now. Like, it's all right. We've got you. And that was just so comforting like immensely comforting just that simple sentence to me was just brought me so much peace and then I was out I was out cold and I was so honestly I was looking forward to being under anesthetic because I just wanted to be out like what I was and just mm. because sleep wasn't actually restful at the time and it just felt great to just be in a space where I was alive but not feeling anything and so I went through, had the surgery. I woke up and they told me that everything went well. There was no complications. And that was just a huge relief. And I was also just relieved that I hadn't had any complications from the anesthesia because I was so worried. I, I'm a bit of a catastrophizer and I thought to myself, what if I have a negative effect with the anesthesia? And what if I pass away? Then my husband's on his own and he's gone through a miscarriage and then he'd lose his wife. Like... How is he meant to process that? And I mean, like I said, it was a worst case scenario, but it's where your brain goes when you've had a when you've had the worst case scenario happen. 
it's hard to think that things will go normally. And so mm. I had my DNC and that all went well. And then it felt like I could finally start to heal. Like I just wanted to be pregnant again. I, mm. working in the doctor's office, I would see so many pregnant women. And it was really confronting. I was happy for them. I don't want anyone to go through what I went through. But it also made me wonder why are their babies able to keep growing? Why is their pregnancy continuing and mine had to stop? And I remember racking my brain. Did I do anything at that 10-week mark? Did I eat something that I shouldn't have? Did I exercise and do something? You know, did I did I have a fall? Like, I just racked my brain. Did I miss my prenatals? And I was told, you know, not to do that but you do it anyway and I was just trying to find was there a reason was there something that I could have done that could have stopped it and there wasn't I had done everything according to the advice and it still happened and that's normal but it was still really hard to process and Mm. for the longest time seeing someone pregnant was really confronting it it was Sometimes I could get through it and it was fine and then other times it felt like a real stab in the heart because my whole life had had shifted when I had fallen pregnant and all of my future planning had gone around, had revolved around me having a baby. I mean, it seems stupid, but I had even changed my work passwords to expecting in 2022 and going back to work the next after that and typing that in killed me. I mean, it's something so inconsequential, something so stupid, but it was really difficult. And so we started trying as soon as I could after the miscarriage because I was just so desperate to be pregnant again. I wanted to get back on track with our plans. I wanted things to just go back. I just wanted it to be as if it never happened, really. And I didn't fall pregnant straight away like I did previously and that was hard and it actually took us I think five on it was on the fifth or sixth cycle before I fell pregnant which still is really nothing I know those that go through infertility like that is such a a huge burden and I know that in the grand scheme of things me trying for that amount of time was nothing it was really just a blimp but it felt like forever going through what I had gone through and my whole life became consumed with desperately wanting to be pregnant again and I remember thinking you know I only have this long to fall pregnant and still have a baby in 2022 and I remember that timeline passing and I remember my baby's due date approaching and I had just naively just assumed that I'd definitely be pregnant by then and as it got closer and closer Mm. I started to wonder will I be pregnant again and like will I be pregnant by the end of the year you know will I ever be able to have a baby and I don't think as a society we're taught how to grieve people didn't know how to comfort me people didn't know what to say and like I had family visit me a month after my miscarriage and no one spoke about it and that was really hard and I think no one asked like how you were feeling and are you okay and no no one I think they just didn't want to make me upset and yeah I think it was done with the best intentions 
Mm. And I think they just thought, oh, I don't want to bring it up. I don't want to upset her. But I don't think they realized that it was on my mind all the time anyway. Bringing it up wouldn't have upset me more. And that was really hard because I had spoken to those family members how excited I was looking forward to my baby. And then all of a sudden it was like my baby never existed. And that really Mm. hurt. And going through this experience taught me that grief isn't linear there were some days where I was coping okay and some days where I felt like it had just happened again and I don't think you ever actually get over any of I don't think you actually get over the grief I think you learn to work around it and I think you learn to not let it affect you as much but it never goes away and I don't think a lot of people Mm. really understand that unless they've gone through a grief themselves and in that time, I had just some comments that were really well-intentioned, but still very hurtful. I had people say to me, at least you know you can get pregnant. And I wanted to say to them, that means absolutely nothing. If my body can't carry a pregnancy, if my baby's not healthy, it means absolutely nothing. In fact, it would be more hurtful, I think, almost in a sense, to just keep falling pregnant and keep losing babies. Like, that's... It was, you know, and I mean, these people were so well-intentioned, don't get me wrong, um, but it was just really difficult and people just didn't know what to say. And it was hard because it, like, it consumed my life, but people didn't want to acknowledge it. So I felt really isolated and my mental health just went super bad. I had just gotten to a super dark place and... I actually had started having PTSD symptoms after the miscarriage and I would wake up dreaming, like I would have dreamt that it was happening again and I dreamt that I was covered in blood Mm. and waking up from that and having flashbacks and recounting the whole experience, it was really traumatic. And I remember one day driving and just having these suicidal ideations and I thought to myself, this is not okay. Like I'm not okay. And I went to the doctors and ended up seeking medication, which thankfully I would say just took the edge off and allowed me to kind of function at a base level. I ended up having to go from full-time uni down to part-time because I just, I don't even know how I managed to do part-time uni and work because I was struggling so immensely. And I just, I realized that I couldn't pull through no matter how hard that I was trying, I still wasn't able to pull through. And so I had to go down to part-time uni. So it changed my life in ways that I hadn't expected it to. I had a comment um, made to me when I, I think it was five months down the track after my miscarriage, I had a comment by a family member who again was well-intentioned, but just had no idea, had never gone through anything like this. And they said to me, oh, are you going to start trying again? And the, the way that it was said kind of made me feel like, are you over it yet? Like, are you going to like move on? And that really Mm. got to me because how do you move on from losing your baby like I don't think you ever do and that was hard and they didn't know but we had been trying and it just wasn't happening for us and that was also really difficult and I kind of just wanted to scream (laughs) because Mm. I was we were trying and I was so desperate to be pregnant again and it was out of my control and that was really difficult 
and I remember I ran out of ovulation test strips the one month and I was like my mental health had just been so bad with me because with ovulation test strips you're meant to test twice a day at least to catch your peak and all this stuff that you end up finding out when you go down the research rabbit hole of trying to conceive and so it was literally just consuming my life and I just I ran out of strips Mm. and I said okay I'm just going to wait until the next month to order more I'm just gonna have a month where I just don't test because it's just wrecking my mental health and I in that time of trying to conceive my periods weren't normal and that freaked me out I was worried that I had what was called Asherman syndrome where they actually uh damage the lining of your uterus and then you struggle to fall pregnant because your baby can't implant and so that was terrifying to me I just spiraled basically was just in a glorious Mm. spiral and just struggling um and anyway so I I ran out of these strips and I just decided I was going to keep myself as busy as I could in that two-week wait period and just try and plan as much as I could and get out of the house so that I was just thinking about it as little as possible and I did that and that was good and I got to 10 days post ovulation just estimated and I did a test and I you know went about doing things in the bathroom and I had a look and there was the faintest second line and I was just shocked I have a photo of me holding this test strip and you can see that my hands had started to sweat because I was a mix of just pure excitement and also terrified. I had gotten to the point mm. where I wanted to get again, but now it just opened up a whole other can of worms of, am I going to lose this baby? And I just, again, went out to my husband straight away with the test and, you know, we had a moment of excitement. But that moment kind of felt stolen when I felt pregnant the first time that moment was just euphoric and sharing the fact that I was pregnant with friends and family members was so joyful and we we did little games to tell you know family members that we were pregnant and you know we chose different ways to announce it to different people and it was just so fun and so exciting and telling people the second time around we didn't do any of that we just told them and it was just done with fear and caution just saying hey look we're pregnant again and I felt a bit robbed of that experience that should have been a really joyful experience and instead it was a cautious one and it was one done out of fear and anyway Mm -hmm. being pregnant again the second time around and the pregnancy expo was in town and I was trying to get a bit more hyped about this pregnancy so I was like oh let's go let's go have a look at all this baby stuff and we did And I ended up walking away so deflated and so heartbroken because people were asking me, oh, are you pregnant? Is this your first? And how do you answer that? It's, I don't have a living child, Mm. but this pregnancy isn't my first. And it's really hard. And it's an awkward conversation to have with someone who just randomly, you know, striking up a conversation and asks you that question. It's a really deep thing to drop on someone but at the same time not telling people made me feel like I was denying that my baby existed and that was hard as well and I just walked away feeling so defeated and 
care. I think you bring up a good point here though because like a lot of what I've learned from people who have lost is that one, children do not replace children. So if Mm -hmm. you've lost a living child, having another one like they are individuals and we see them as individuals. And I think that honestly goes for pregnancies. Like pregnancies don't replace pregnancies. 100%. 100%. It's just an important point, but yeah. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. And being pregnant again, as much as I wanted to be back at this stage, was terrifying. And it was probably the hardest thing I've done. Mm. And I just spent every moment just, I hope things are going okay. I hope things are going okay. It was just, even if I was busy at work or on placement doing something, it was just still in the back of your mind, hoping that things are okay. And at the start, it's hard as well, because there's not much you can do to monitor when in those very early weeks. There's just nothing you can do. You just wait. And waiting is something that I've never been great at. But also waiting after loss was just agonizing. And anyway, I told my, uh, my granny, she's technically only my granny through marriage, but she's been my granny my whole life she's my granny and she had actually gone through a few miscarriages of herself her own and that was comforting because she knew what I was going through I think she was one of the few people in my family that actually knew what I was experiencing and she was really lovely to me in in that period after my miscarriage and I told her that I was pregnant again while I was on placement because she worked at that hospital And she was excited for me and she said, come tour the labor and delivery room with me, you know, and she was just trying to get me excited. And so I went up after my shift and we toured the labor and delivery room, even though I was six weeks pregnant (laughs) and very far from going through labor and delivery. I love that though. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was special. It was fun. And I actually toured the room that I ended up giving birth in, which was kind of funny as well, but you know, at the time it was oh, just, wow. you know, to go in and have a look and try and get excited. And immediately before I, like immediately after that, before I left the hospital, I went to the bathroom and I was spotting. And I felt like if mm. there was a God, then that surely had to be the cruelest joke in the whole world. Like I panicked because I know that spotting can be normal or well, not normal, but common in the first trimester. But from my experience with the last pregnancy, I only started spotting technically after my baby had passed away. And so I I freaked out and I called my granny crying and I just said, do I go to the ER? Like, what do I do? And she came and got me and she she said, look, we can go to the ER and we can wait. But she's like, we'll be waiting a long time. And unfortunately, if you're miscarrying, there's nothing that they can do. She said, what I recommend is you go to the doctors tonight. You get a referral form and just go in to an ultrasound clinic tomorrow. And then that way you're not waiting for ages and just go mm-hmm. home and take it easy. And that's what I ended up doing. And she ended up driving me to her place and my husband came and got me and we went to the doctor's. And I remember just crying to her, like, just heartbroken and just saying, I can't believe that I'm losing another baby. And she she was trying really hard to comfort me. And she's like, oh, you don't know, you, you don't know that you're miscarrying. Things might be fine. And I know that she was really trying to be strong for me, but I could also tell that she was worried. And 
I went to the doctors and cried at the doctors saying that I needed this referral form and he said to me look you're young unfortunately it happens like it's good that you can get pregnant and he was he was being really genuine he was trying to make me feel better but just words couldn't console me and again falling pregnant meant nothing if I was going to miscarry again and I we went and got takeout food our favorite Thai place and we came home and cried and ate Thai food and watched just a stupid comedy movie to kind of get our minds off of it as much as what we could and my bleeding had increased and I remember telling my husband at least it happened at six weeks as opposed to 14 weeks like as rough as this is I'm glad that you know if it's happening then it's happening now and I can just get it done with before it progresses even further and the next day we went Mm. to get an ultrasound and I remember looking at the screen and I saw a flicker and I was just shocked and I asked her is that a heartbeat and she said yeah it is and I was just astounded my husband and I walked out of that room just shocked because we went in there just fully expecting to confirm a miscarriage again and instead we were told no you're still pregnant and it was a relief because that's what I wanted, but also there was so much uncertainty and like, would this continue? Would my bleeding get heavier? Would I end up miscarrying? I just didn't know. But for that moment, I knew I was pregnant and that was difficult as well because I lost my first baby so immediately after that ultrasound, I knew that while you're looking at your baby can be completely fine, but as soon as that wand goes away, you don't know. Mm. And so walking away being excited, I was still wondering, is but has the baby's heartbeat stopped yet? Like it was just a thought niggling at me. And plays on your mind now too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I had spotting happen a couple of times. I had it again at eight weeks and again at ten weeks. And each time I wondered have I lost my baby is Mm. are we going to do a scan and it's going to be the same I'm so sorry and that was really nerve-wracking we actually opted to have some elective ultrasounds that we paid out of pocket for as well Uh, and I had them every week between I think eight weeks to 12 weeks because going through a missed miscarriage and just knowing that it happened and knowing that I had no idea was so traumatic so I just wanted to know. So every week we just checked and everything was fine. But it was hard to take comfort in that because everything had been fine with our first pregnancy as well. So it was yeah. it was as much comfort as I could get, but it still didn't fully help, if that makes sense. And I got to my baby's my first baby's due date. And I was at the nine-week mark, and that was really traumatic, being so close to when I miscarried as far as gestationally with my first baby, but being around his what would have been birthday was really difficult. Uh, And just anxiety was through the roof. Even with my medication, I was struggling big time. Um, And thankfully, I was able to use services. They've got Pink Elephant, and they've got Sands, Um, which deals with infant loss at any stage and they were amazing and I called them multiple times because I just spiraled and needed someone to talk to 
And so I was really grateful to be able to get some help from them. And yeah, and we ended up going to the same place uh, that we electively got our ultrasounds done. They did an early gender scan and they could do it as early as 14 weeks, which is insanely early. But if I miscarried again, I wanted to know what gender my baby was going to be. And that was honestly my thinking behind it. And so we went through and we had had it and we found out that we were having a girl and we were super excited because we had, my husband and I had both thought that we would have had a girl first. It, it was just something that growing up, we just kind of always, always assumed and it kind of felt like, oh, it's happening. And we were super excited and we had a gender reveal with family, which again was a mixed emotions event I was really excited to share the gender that we were having with them but I kept having dreams that I was miscarrying and if I had just a bit of discharge being in pregnancy you know that glorious things that your body goes through if I had a bit of discharge I was wondering is that blood am I bleeding and I just thought to myself like intrusively what if I lose my baby the day of the gender reveal and it was just so hard to put those thoughts aside. Mm. It was really hard. I wanted to just celebrate. And look, I definitely did celebrate, but there was those just those niggling doubts in my head and those fears because they were so present. And after after experiencing your worst fear come true, it's hard to imagine that things can go right. Yeah, I think your fears and worries are valid, absolutely, because of what had happened and particularly having the scan at 10 weeks and then losing baby at the same time, but then not knowing for a whole four weeks. Yeah, yeah exactly. But did you live through this pregnancy anticipating miscarriage for the entire pregnancy or was there a point that you got and you thought, I'm okay, everything's going to be okay? For my whole pregnancy, I struggled every day as thankfully I started feeling movements really early on which kind of gave me some comfort but then I spent every day has baby moved enough is baby moving too much or too little and I was just constantly anxious about that and I remember getting to 20 weeks and it was honestly probably the worst point because I felt like I had really bonded with my baby in feeling her movements but I knew that if I went into premature labor that nothing could have really been done like they couldn't save my baby and Mm. that was really scary and I ended up going on a wait list for counseling through SANS and I didn't end up receiving that counseling until I was like 39 weeks pregnant (laughs) because there's such a demand unfortunately but I spiraled and I remember there were websites available of what hospitals would actually take 22 weekers if you were pregnant to 22 weeks like hospitals that actually had a 22 weeker survive and like there was like one or two that had a 21 weeker survive and I remember looking at those hospitals and memorizing I went overseas at that time and I remember looking at where we were and memorizing which hospitals had done that so that if I had gone into labor then I knew like it was just purely catastrophized thinking but I just wanted to give my baby the best chance if if anything did happen. I honestly yeah. didn't know if I would be able to survive going through another loss. Yeah. And I think I got through 20 to 24 weeks and I kind of had a moment where I felt like I could breathe a little bit. And I thought, oh, like 
my baby's hit the viability mark where it's not guaranteed but there's a chance and most hospitals acknowledge that there's a chance at 24 weeks and so that was a relief and then I remember I was 24 weeks and I had one day where I did not feel her move and I went to labor and delivery after my shift at work and I cried and I said I haven't felt my baby move all day and they hooked me up to monitors and I had a lovely midwife and she was so sweet and comforting and as soon as they put that monitor on we could hear her kicking she must have been facing the placenta and kicking at the placenta because she was kicking away but Mm. I just couldn't feel anything so that was a huge relief but again I thought I had lost my baby at that point and Mm. at that point I think after 20 weeks, you have to have a funeral. You can't just miscarry at home. You actually have to go through labor. And that was also a really scary thought. And yeah, so I went through my whole pregnancy with this fear. And I remember I got gestational diabetes, which was just another added complication. Uh, And I had a family member freak me out about the fact that with gestational diabetes, you're at a slightly increased risk of stillbirth. I already know women who've gone through stillbirth. I already was very aware that it's a possibility going through loss. And I had a huge panic attack about it at the time. And, Mm. you know, and I needed to start buying things for the baby. I needed to buy the bassinet. But purchasing those things was also so scary because it was, I guess, the risk of will I actually be bringing my baby home? I remember setting up the bassinet and waking up one morning and looking at it and thinking, what if I never put a baby in that bassinet? What if I come home and I have to just sell it? And that was scary. I remember three days before I went in with my induction, we drove past a grave um, we just we were driving and we drove past a uh, a graveyard and I remember thinking what if this time next week I'm planning a funeral and I was so terrified because I just thought I don't know how to plan a funeral I don't know how to plan a funeral for a, my baby like that's not what people are meant to do you know and I was terrified so your entire pregnancy has like this death cloud, I'm going to call it. Yeah, no, exactly. I don't know what it's you would call it, but just yeah, that. like, and it, so it's robbed you of any joy or excitement or projection into the future that equaled happiness and a happy ending because a lot of the time it equaled something negative um, or in some form of loss. That's so hard to hear you talk about your pregnancy in that way because it's like, I don't know, maybe it's just, I I understand that this would probably be the reality for so many because it's like, how can you, how can you not, if I'm making any sense at all, you know, like I get why your head was going there. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of the envy came through with. And I mean, I was mm. so happy. I was so happy for all the women that never had to experience anything like that. I I wouldn't want that to happen to anyone. But I also had the envy that they got to just be naive throughout their pregnancy. They just got to go ahead, plan their baby shower, have their baby, and everything went well. And that was so frustrating for me to, like, people would ask me, oh, are you going to have a baby shower? Are you going to do this? Are you going to do that? When the baby's here, what are your plans? And I would tell them, but I was also not entirely sure if that would happen. So it was like 
oh yeah I have this plan but in the back of my mind like is that plan actually going to go through am I going to be planning a funeral am I going to be having mm. to have a long sticky grip <laughs> sticky grip sock vacation at a mental health hospital um, after losing my baby like that was just always in the back of my mind and did you stay yeah. on medication the whole way through your pregnancy I did and that was a difficult choice to make as well because okay. obviously with it, whatever medication you take there is a risk to your baby and that scared me because I didn't want to add any additional risk. The medication I was on is considered the safest antidepressant um, that you can be on during pregnancy but just knowing that there was even a slight additional risk scared me but at the end of the day my mental health and surviving that period was more important for my baby than the potential risk. I needed to survive mm. that pregnancy, so the benefits outweighed the risk. And that was hard because I felt guilty that I wasn't mentally okay enough to do it without, but I just couldn't. And I had support networks through SANS, which was great. And we met like online and did support meetings with other women who had lost. And wow. that had some pros because there were people who understood what I was going through, but it also was bad because I, my mind was open to the, all the different types of loss because these women mm. had gone through different types of loss and it almost fueled the anxiety of, oh my gosh, it really can happen at any moment. One woman was sharing her experience and she lost her baby during labor. And so... Mm. That was like even labor wasn't guaranteed to end in a living baby, and it just so your brain me. is latching on to these, yeah, 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 exactly. And I mean, I'm already naturally an anxious person, I think I came out of my mum's womb anxious, so Aww. you know, having <laughs> dealing with loss like just fueled that yes. fire, uh, and just made me spiral, honestly. Just reflecting on what you have already shared in terms of your first pregnancy and your second pregnancy, the miscarriage, but then sort of the weight of that anxiety. And you also talked about PTSD um, symptoms as well in that second pregnancy due to your miscarriage. I just, as I was thinking about how much you've shared and how much detail you kind of went into there, I just want to recognize like how open and willing to talk about this you were and how I just know that that is going to help so many and it's going to resonate with so many because as we know, miscarriage is so common. And we often don't talk about the aftermath of a miscarriage as well and all of that entails. So I just really appreciate you sharing all of that with me, Brianna. I just wanted to say that before we get into the the next part of your story (laughs) yeah thank you so much for allowing me to share like I said it's something that like I think a lot of people aren't really comfortable discussing and I think that can really be difficult and also yeah people don't talk about it people don't talk about when they're trying for a baby and if they miscarry it's not something that gets discussed so navigating afterwards was really difficult and I don't really want anyone to feel like alone like it's a it's a very isolating experience and with the amount of women that go through it it really shouldn't be um, yeah and yeah, yeah so and I, I don't know sharing it is it's not something that's uncomfortable for me it, it, I think it kind of honors 
the fact that my baby existed and for me it's it's something that I'm comfortable with so thank you for allowing me to do that yeah of course and this is such this is so a place for it as well you know I'm I'm all about listening and hearing these experiences but also being able to share them because I've I not only learn so much even if I don't necessarily resonate on a on a personal level um, I learn so much from people sharing and so I really really yeah. appreciate people sharing with me um it just it helps you get a better understanding but then it also helps you know how to help and support if yourself or your family members or friends go through it as well and it's just it's worthy of acknowledging and so yeah I appreciate that exactly so you talked a lot about the anxieties and the fears and the traumas that occurred in your second pregnancy but you mentioned that your birth was empowering so what was empowering about it? How did your birth go? Yeah, um, so I think the biggest thing, the reason why it was so empowering for me was because I spent so long before questioning if my body was able to do what it needed to do. After having a miscarriage and especially a missed miscarriage, I had no faith in my body and I didn't think that it could do what it needed to do. And even just getting to the point of, like viability was a huge thing for me um getting to that 24 week mark even though I know that odds aren't really amazing it was a bit of a like a relief and it was exciting to just get to that point and as I just got further and further it felt like my body was actually doing what it should and I started to have that hope that maybe things could go okay um I Actually, so I was really excited when I hit 14 weeks and I was able to be referred to the midwives. That was an exciting point for me because then I wouldn't have to deal with ED if I had issues. I could go to labor and delivery. And I feel like that was a huge point because ED can be really hit and miss and especially when it comes to pregnancy. So I was really excited to get there. Um, But the midwife that I've been referred to was incredibly condescending and she was very fat phobic and I Ooh, yes. really this is struggled a, with that yes this is actually a major problem in it's maternity a care huge theme yeah it's yeah. a huge theme um I was really grateful I had a student midwife and that helped me a lot I really recommend anyone who can get a student midwife get one because it it helps you I think because the comments she would make were very passive aggressive and it was hard to actually acknowledge it was hard to it more so I think left you with a feeling of feeling really uncomfortable when I'd have an appointment with her, I'd end up walking away feeling really disheartened and uncomfortable. And it wasn't so much that she said a very specific comment, but it was the treatment that I received. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, but as, as I was pregnant in the late second trimester, um, my BMI, which I mean, don't even get me started on BMI. Yep. Yep. Anyway, <laughs> um, my and I was pregnant. Um, mm-hmm. my BMI hit the the borderline where it became severely obese was my classification. And she made sure that I knew that I was severely obese. And I struggled with that because I've always struggled with my body, you know, I think most women have, honestly. Yeah. Um, so I struggled with that, but also after I had my miscarriage, I really struggled with my body in general and I had a lot of shame and I was binge eating because I just was miserable and it was it wasn't a healthy coping mechanism, but it was my coping mechanism. And so I felt really guilty because I felt like, oh no, I've put my baby at risk 
because I was struggling and you know now it's now it's affecting my pregnancy now I'm really worried about that um and so I had to do uh two of the glucose tests um just to test for gestational diabetes because of my BMI um and the first one I passed and the second one I failed um I was just borderline yeah I hear this a lot by the way yeah so that was really disheartening because I like I'm studying my nursing so I, I understand how gestational diabetes affects the body and when you go through something like this you want as minimal complications as possible and yeah. so it just felt really disheartening and I was like oh no is it my weight and then logically I knew that gestational diabetes doesn't actually discriminate necessarily with weight it's it's kind of a luck of a draw sometimes and some pregnancies you have it some pregnancies you don't and I had it with Lauren so that was a bit tricky to navigate and I remember getting diagnosed with it and then I think it was like two to three weeks before I could actually see a diabetes educator and that made me nervous because I knew that my sugars weren't right but I also didn't have any ability to monitor them in that time Mm. and so I was like oh no like I really hope that I'm doing the right thing like I, I felt just anxious it just added to the anxiety which I really didn't need any fuel to that fire really but um it did and then I was able to see an educator which um, was a relief and you know took you into the room and if you have gestational diabetes you're testing your sugar after every single meal and also when you first wake up in the morning thankfully I didn't have a phobia of needles I felt really bad for a woman in my group that did so I don't know how she coped but thankfully I was okay with that um but one of the gestational diabetes educators we had was lovely and she was great she was very informative um but the dietitian that we had was also really fat phobic and it was ironic because most of the women that I was with were super fit, super thin. Like they looked like they were constantly at the gym and they looked like they could be on a health commercial. They were yeah. just glowing. And so it was kind of interesting that she was like that. And she handed out these booklets that had information about what serving sizes and was educating us about starches and how they affect your sugars and whatnot, um, which, you know, you'd expect from a dietitian. And that was great. And the booklet said that, you know, aim for no more than eight serves of carbs a day. And a serve of carbs was considered one slice of bread. And so no more. A day? Than, yeah, a day. So no more than eight. So that was, that's fine. But is it though? Well, I don't know. It was all right. It was better than when she said, she ended up saying to us, I want you guys to aim for only four serves of carbs a day. And I was, I felt like so crappy because I remember the day before I had two sandwiches for lunch and I was like, oh my gosh, my lunch went over my day's worth of carbs. And so I was so worried. I was like, oh no, I'm doing the wrong thing. And like, I've got to really cut back. And so I did. And she also told us she was very particular. And she said that um, if our sugars went without a particular range more than three times, then we would have to go and see an endocrinologist because we weren't controlling our sugars. And it felt like obviously diabetes can be controlled with diet, but with gestational diabetes, it can't always be. There's so many different factors and it made us well, sorry, it made me feel like if you, it was like three strikes and you're out. Yeah. Like you need to not screw this up 
otherwise you're failing and you're not doing the right thing by your baby is kind of the impression it gave. And I walked away feeling really defeated because um, her the, the food amount she gave you was so restrictive. Like she said no more than like a, I think a quarter of an avocado a day and, you know, very like she cut the carbs that were recommended in half and you know only if you have nuts like a tablespoon or two tablespoons of nuts if you're hungry like it was very much like it was very extreme and I think it wasn't I don't know it wasn't really I think it was it was just really extreme um her advice and it kind of made it difficult to actually implement. Um, but anyway, I went home and I followed that advice because I was so nervous about my sugars being out. And my meal sugars were great, but I was starving. I yeah. was so hungry. She also made a comment that really got to me. And she said that because um, someone said like, oh, are we allowed to snack? Because we only test after sugar, like after meals. Like are we allowed to sh- to snack? And the lady said, yes like you can have snacks um if you're hungry though and if you're actually hungry as if your stomach is hungry not as in you just want to eat is what she said to us so and I mean we were in our third trimester of pregnancy we were starving yeah this is actually so problematic because when you think of eating disorders and when people say eating disorders they always think of things like bulimia or anorexia but Binge eating is also a form of an eating disorder and restrictive eating. Yeah. Disordered eating, you know, so Mm -hmm. this is so problematic because not only are you talking to a group of women who are growing humans and by no fault of their own, have they, have they got gestational diabetes, but now we're then telling them, putting restrictions on food and saying what food is good and what food is bad. And we know like we don't, we're not even supposed to be doing that with kids let alone grown ass adults like this is absurd one of the ladies in my class said oh like is milo like a definite no then and she said you can have one glass of milo if you have one spoonful of the milo and it's the sugar reduced milo and i was like oh crap i have a milo every day (laughs) so i was panicking because i tried really hard to follow her advice to a t and I just became starving. I was so hungry. I was That's eating little so cans bad. of tuna. I was eating hard-boiled eggs. I was eating my veggies and it, being careful about the fruits that I selected and even the vegetables that I selected because, you you know, let us know. Obviously, veggies can sometimes have carbs. It can spike. So I was really restrictive. And I remember getting home from work one day to my husband and just crying because I was so hungry that I got to the point I was angry and just miserable. And I just broke and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to start eating. Obviously I'm going to be healthy and I'm going to be aware, but I'm just going to start eating, I guess, somewhat normally and see how my sugars react to that. Mm -hmm. And I did. And my sugars were fine. Yeah. My sugars were actually fine with my meals. I didn't really ever have issues unless if I ate. Actually, it was weird. Everyone has different triggers. And for mine, it was like a pre-made pasta. Like if I got ravioli, mm. it would spike it. But if I had dried pasta, I was fine. Yeah. So I was actually able to find balance. And I was so much happier. And I was full and satisfied and not going insane because I wasn't starving to death. Well, I'm so glad that you did that and that yeah. you wiped that advice because I'm that glad is I just... was able to take a step back and do that yeah. because it was really 
difficult because I didn't want and it's really hard when you get advice from a professional you don't want to do the wrong thing by your baby when your baby is involved you want to be doing the right thing of course and it's really scary to I guess question that advice um obviously I don't have my degree so it's it's not and I I think we need to be careful of not overriding advice just because, you know, we hear something from TikTok or Instagram, but it, it's a, it's a fine line between being able to take advice and then also being able to question it and ask, okay, where is this advice coming from? So it's, I think a bit of a balancing act. And I just yeah. felt so anxious when I had my, knowing that my actions were affecting my baby as well and you were already going through so much yeah it's just like an additional thing it just added to it and then anyway so I went about doing my sugars and it actually was my fasting sugar that was out um your body ends up releasing uh sugars throughout the night um to keep you satiated in your sleep and my night sugars were out so I'd wake up first thing in the morning test my sugars and my sugars were already out which felt really disheartening because I was so oh no like what am I doing wrong and thankfully I had a a lovely nurse who explained that to me and said it was fine and I had to go on insulin which was just another thing um but luckily that was all right I'd had to just keep upping my insulin um but other than that, my sugars were controlled. I had my daily Milo and it was fine. Right. <laughs> so I'm so glad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and I, after getting the diagnosis of gestational diabetes, I had an appointment with my midwife shortly afterwards and she flat out told me, you'll be induced. Yeah. I had no option in it. She said, like, she didn't say that explicitly, but she said, because you have gestational diabetes, you'll have to be induced. And that was the end of it. And I questioned that and she was very adamant, no, like this is what happens. And there was a lot of shame put on me. And like I said, she was very fat phobic and it was very difficult. And I ended up just walking out really upset. I felt really ashamed of myself. I felt like I was doing the wrong thing by my baby I didn't want an induction. I really didn't want an induction because I was worried that there would be an increased risk of cesarean section. And I didn't know how my mental health would cope if I had a cesarean section because I knew I needed to leave the house postpartum. If I didn't leave the house postpartum, I knew I was really going to struggle. I was already at higher risk of having postpartum anxiety and depression. And I just knew that that would really be the final nail in the coffin, I guess. Um, So that was something that I really didn't want. I knew obviously if my baby needed it, then I would go for it. But if I could avoid it, I definitely wanted to avoid it. So what model of care were you in? I can't remember the actual term. I had. were you in the public system? Yeah, I was in the public system and I saw the same midwife throughout my care pregnancy and would have been postpartum as well. Um, but they weren't there for the birth. So I can't remember what exactly. It's not the MGP? The, it's the MGP. That's it. Oh, yep. you were in the MGP. Yeah, so it was okay. MGP. Oh, this so, is terrible. And I, <sighs> after that appointment, I left feeling like crap. And my student midwife wasn't actually able to be there for that appointment. But I ended up telling her how I was feeling. And I decided, I was like, I need to request someone else because I feel so uncomfortable with her. And I was like, I really only have a couple more appointments left, but I would have postpartum appointments with her. 
And the last thing I needed when I was going through postpartum was to have someone making me feel bad. So I was so anxious and I called up and I just said, hey, I don't want to go into it, but I'm just wondering if there's a possibility that I can change midwives. And I said, I know that your workload is really heavy and I know that this is a bit tricky, but I'm just really needing to see someone else. And the lady that I got was so lovely. She was so understanding and she said, look, we don't always click with everyone and we would hate to to make, we would hate to believe that you felt uncomfortable. We want you to feel comfortable in your care. So she's like, that's not a problem. And she made me feel so good. Like I was so nervous to make this call and she actually made me feel really comfortable about it. And I ended up seeing her and she was amazing. Her advice was lovely. She would communicate to me and she would explain things so well to me. And she always told me, like, the decisions are always yours. You're the one that's in charge. We will give you recommendations and we'll explain to you why we give you those recommendations. But at the end of the day, it's your choice. And that felt really good. After having the experience that I'd had before, it was like night and day. Yeah. And I was really glad she actually ran the birth education classes. And that was great. My husband and I were able to go to that and we were able to talk about the different interventions and if we needed interventions what ones we would choose to go with and we had that discussion before labor because I felt like in the moment it's really not always the greatest I I guess see okay well why would we go with that you know are there times where it's actually not recommended that you have that intervention and it was just really great to be able to ask those questions to know what we were getting into and to just feel comfortable And she was amazing at that. Um, And so I was really grateful. The experience that I received, like the care that I received under her was just so different and it was so much better. And I would walk away from my appointments feeling happy instead of feeling completely miserable. So Mm -hmm. that was really great. And we did talk about an induction because I knew that, um, you know, depending on if my sugars were really bad um, and obviously, gestational diabetes can open you up to other complications and sometimes that's actually the best way to go and I wasn't against that but I did want to avoid it if I could um so we talked about that and I was just feeling comfortable I felt good um and things things were going well uh I did end up opting for an induction and I felt like because of this midwife I felt like it was actually my own decision I felt like I could weigh up the options and decide for myself so that was I feel like a big reason why it felt empowering as well I'd spoken to an endocrinologist when I was 36 weeks and that was after I had my second um, ultrasound to check to see how baby was growing and she said everything was going great she said from a gestational diabetes point of view you actually don't need an induction She said, if things change and you end up with high blood pressure and there's other complications, then we'd obviously need to review that. But as far as an endocrinologist's point of view, I'm happy with how you're progressing and I don't think that there's a need to intervene. So that was really great to hear, Um, especially after my first midwife was just so close-minded and was just so adamant that I would need an induction and there was no other option. Um, but I ended up having a meeting at 38 weeks with the OBGYN and I just explained my concerns with, you know, potential induction. And I was saying that I was struggling to make the decision because with the anxiety, I wanted to do the right thing by the baby, 
and I was so worried. In my head, my perfect birth was going to be an unmedicated water birth. (laughs) You know, that was like what I was aiming for. And you can't have that if you have an induction. Actually, I think they've changed that just recently. But at the time, you couldn't have that if you had an induction. And, you know, I really wanted the water birth for a few reasons. And so I just knew that that would cut out that option we did end up deciding to book in at 40 weeks for an induction. And she was very clear. She said, if you're not comfortable with that, if you change your mind, you can do that at any time. So you just call us up and say, I'm not going ahead with it. And we cancel it. She's like, it's just easier if we've got you in the books. And if you don't need it, then you don't need it. That's fine. And I was very, I was comfortable with that. And I hit 39 weeks pregnant and I realized that was my expiry date with pregnancy. I was so done being pregnant. 39 weeks was it. And I just could not, every day after 39 weeks felt like a week in itself. I could not wait to get that baby out of me. So I kept my induction date and I tried, I think everything on the first two pages of Google that said would induce labor, everything but castor oil, I tried. And I genuinely believe it's a bunch of crap honestly (laughs) it is none of it it worked I was so desperate and I tried everything we had our induction date uh on valentine's actually (laughs) and we went in to get the balloon catheter and I you know was prepped for that and the midwife explained everything to me Uh, And she said, oftentimes women will get period like cramps, you know, nothing, nothing extreme. Um, And she inserted the balloon catheter and the painful cramps that I was getting were intense. They weren't period cramps, but I felt like I couldn't say anything because she had just said, oh, you know, it'll only be period cramps. It'll be really mild. I was in so much pain that I would struggle to talk and I just went really quiet. And my husband and student midwife noticed and like, are you okay? And I was like, I'm in a lot of pain and I was really struggling and I was able to move positions and that actually ended up making me feel better. And we had to be on the monitor for a while because my baby's heart rate went up. She wasn't thrilled about having a balloon on her head. So, you know, we were there for a little bit and then things were okay. And we got sent home to come back 12 hours later. So at 3 a.m. we went in and I got hooked up to the drip and started my induction I went into labor around 7 30 in the morning and at first I was like oh I've got this like you know breathing through my contractions and I was remembering you know the the affirmations that I had and I remember being nervous because they said oh we'll consider you in active labor when you're having four contractions in a 10 minute period and I was like oh my goodness like that sounds like a lot and I got there and I was like this is actually easy like I'm doing it this is good And then they upped the drip and I went from being completely fine to being in a world of pain. (laughs) And I started having five contractions in a 10 minute period and my contractions were lasting about 90 seconds each. And I was maybe getting a 30 second break in between maybe. And so I was just in agony because I wasn't getting the break that I needed. I went from zero to a hundred And I knew that that was common with induction. So I was, you know, prepared for that. And I just, I went from coping fine to in agony. And I remember pulling on the sides of the bed and I pulled on the sides of the bed so hard. My husband thought that I was going to break the bed, but I don't know when I was having a contraction, it was just an outlet and it was something that worked for me. And it was just agony. And I remember saying, I want, 
I want pain help. Like the pain was so intense that I started throwing up. So they gave me um, IV medication to help stop that because I really didn't want to be going through labor and throwing up. Throwing up is bad enough as it is. Um, so they gave me that medication and that kicked in. I started to feel better, but still in a lot of pain. And I said, oh, I want to try the gas. And they gave me the gas and I took three breaths of that and threw up instantly. I was so sick. I tried the gas a couple of times and it just wasn't for me. It didn't do anything for pain, just instantly made me sick. So that was frustrating. <laughs> um, I got the morphine injection that didn't touch my pain at all. It was like, I didn't get that. And this was, I decided that I wanted an epidural. I was like, yep, give me the epidural. I want that. And in the meantime, cause he was giving an epidural to another woman. Um, these were the interventions that we tried and they just didn't do anything for me. And I was getting the epidural. The guy came in. I've never been so happy to see someone <laughs> in my life. <laughs> And I'm mid-contraction as I'm trying to get up on the bed. So he's not doing anything yet. I don't have to hold completely still at this moment. I'm trying to obviously get in position so he can can do it and just get it done with. But obviously I can't stop a contraction. And I started contracting and I just needed to stop and pause where I was. And she started pushing me up the bed and saying, you need to keep moving because he needs to keep going. And I was just shocked. And I was like, are you serious? I I can't speak at the moment. I'm in this much pain. Like this isn't intentional. <laughs> I'm I'm not trying to be difficult. So that was not the most pleasant of interactions. And thankfully it was a very brief interaction. The nurses that I had in my room were brilliant. It was just that very brief moment that was difficult. And they placed the epidural and that was just sweet relief. I think my birth is probably was probably a lot smoother because of that epidural. It was the best decision I made, I feel like, for me. Um, and I was a bit worried with having the epidural as well because I did know that it would kind of mean that I was strapped to the bed for, you know, lack of lack of better use of terminology. And I didn't want that because I know that obviously with birth, there's physiological aspects that come into play and being able to move can really help progress a labor. And so I was really nervous about that, but the pain was just so intense. So I went with the epidural and they ended up checking my dilation after that. And they were like, oh, you're actually a 10. <laughs> so that felt, I guess, good because I was like, oh, okay, that intense pain. It was, you know, something was happening. Like my body was doing something. So it was worth it. And anyway, they quickly sent the, because I was, numb and everything they sent the midwife off to lunch and they said when she gets back you'll start pushing and so that was great and it was really exciting I remember looking at the clock and thinking my baby is going to be born like in the next few hours like it's it's actually going to happen um and it was just I guess a bit of a giddy feeling and she came back and we started pushing and you know I pushed for a while um this was my first birth really so it you know it takes time obviously and I guess just because you're dilated to attend doesn't mean that you're necessarily 100% ready either and the fact that I wasn't able to move around kind of made it a bit tricky um but I had really great midwives that supported me I did end up having feeling in my legs and I was able to 
to move them a bit. So I did ask, can I actually try kneeling on the bed and try pushing that way? And they were fully supportive of that. And that was really great. I ended up, I did end up delivering her on my back because it was actually where I was having the most success, which is a bit strange because I tell you that it's one of the worst positions, but for me, it was what was working. So I just went with what was going well for me. And because I had the met quarters, I had the peds in the room um, and I ended up having an OBGYN delivering because the midwife that I had was a brand new, um, it was her first week on the ward. <laughs> so she was brand new and the OBGYN I had was so lovely. She spoke to me. I felt like I was an equal. There wasn't that power hierarchy of I'm the doctor and you're the patient. She was just so lovely and I felt in control. She did say to me like, look, I'm noticing that, you know, you've got a lot of um, signs that you might go, you're possibly going to tear and I'm a bit worried about that. And she said, I would probably recommend doing an episiotomy soon. And I was just grateful. The way she explained it to me, I was so comfortable with that. And we had done interventions throughout. Um, my daughter ended up needing the... I can't remember what it's called, the little electrode, I think, um, to monitor her heart rate. And that was fine because I could see that it was needed and I was comfortable with going. As long as I could see that it was needed and not just unnecessary and I had the option, I was fine with going ahead with it. Um, and I think that's a big part of being empowered. It's not so much how much intervention you end up having or how little intervention you end up having, but having that choice and being able to make informed consent. Um, and I've heard a lot of horror stories of women thinking that it's just a sticker and no, it's, it's got a screw. Like it, it does go into the scalp and that was informed to me when I had the birth class. And I was really grateful for that transparency because I didn't feel betrayed afterwards. You know what I mean? It was, I made that decision knowing that it was best for my baby and knowing that it was more than just a sticker. Um, and so I think that was really valuable for me. And anyway, I, she asked if, you know, if I'm comfortable to get the episiotomy. And I remember reading that like a warm compress can sometimes help. And I said, can we try that instead? And she was fully on board and she's like, yep, no worries. And she got one and she held one there for me. And I delivered my baby. I, it took a minute. She was struggling to kind of get over, I guess, the ridge in my tailbone. And the OBGYN did say like, you know, she's starting to get distressed. My heart rate was starting to climb. By the time I delivered her, I'd been pushing for an hour and a half. So, you know, it was pretty exhausting. Um, and she did recommend doing forceps. And I did say to her, I was like, I'm so sure that she's almost here. Can we just try pushing just for a little bit longer? Like I'm comfortable if we need forceps and let's do it. But I was like, I'm honestly, I think she's so close to being here. And she's like, yep, we can keep trying that. Let's do that. And I think after one or two more contractions, she was here and she was like, that was great. You know, we didn't end up needing it. That's awesome. You, you listen to yourself and that's, that's brilliant. And so I just couldn't believe that my baby was here it just didn't seem real um they placed her on my chest and she actually had a low ape gas score she was a bit um unwell from the met quarters so they did end up uh they weren't able to do the delayed cord, cord clamping and they ended up um doing a bit of recess and I was really grateful because that was explained to me in the birth classes that that was a possibility 
and I knew with having mech waters that it was also an increased possibility and just knowing that made it so much less traumatic for me and I was a lot more calm I was still nervous and I remember looking over at her while they were giving her air and suction and I remember just telling telling her we didn't go through all of that for you to die on me now like you keep going um and she did she was fine they had 10 minutes of of doing this suction and air and she was all right and I got to have her on my chest and I actually didn't even look at her face for a while because of where she was placed on my chest and it just felt like such an amazing feeling I just remember sobbing like I just couldn't believe she was here um and because that was like a lot it was intense like it had just been nine months well plus you know all the miscarriage and everything in the lead up like but then also in your birth, like that yeah. was actually a lot. <laughs> yeah, you know? it was, like it wasn't traumatic for me, I think, because I had no. been educated on it and I always had the choice and that felt really empowering and it felt really good. Um, but it wasn't, I guess, necessarily the most simple birth. Definitely not the most complicated, but not she didn't just come very easily into the world. But it was, yeah, it was just amazing to be able to hold her. And I don't think anything beats that high, that euphoric high of holding your baby. And it was interesting because even when I miscarried and I held my baby, I think it was very similar. I remember feeling so much protection and so much love for that baby. And with my first baby, even though he wasn't alive, I wanted to protect him. And it I think it's just a very primal thing, I guess. Mm. Um, and so it was really interesting, I guess, to compare the two. And to still have that emotion there for both. Um, And it wasn't really until I started to try to latch her that I actually got to like look at her face because I just held on to her. And I was like, oh my goodness, she's beautiful. Um, And even my midwife said, oh gosh, she's beautiful. Because I said, you know, if your midwives just say, congrats, you had a baby, then it's an ugly baby. But I was like, if my midwives say she's beautiful, then she's beautiful. Um, and so, yeah, it was really amazing. And we started breastfeeding and I felt like the birth experience was amazing, but my postpartum experience, I feel like really fell flat. Yeah. You Um, were saying that this was kind of the struggle. Yeah, definitely. So with her postpartum, I struggled to get her to latch. Um, obviously it's a learning experience for both you and baby. You've never done this before. So it's it's completely foreign. I think a lot of people think, oh, it's natural, so it'll be easy. And it's definitely not. I think pretty much any mother who's tried to breastfeed will say it's not, it's not just the flick of a light. Um, and so I had my, the nurse that helped who came on after while I was still on labor and delivery ward, she showed me how to latch and was helping me through that. And that was great. And I got put down into the postpartum ward and my baby was the only baby on that ward that screamed she screamed for three hours and I was struggling I was trying I was feeding her she was latching and feeding it was really difficult were you alone or was your husband with you my husband was there and he was we were trying to settle her but I mean, you're both doing it yeah first baby you know you just yeah totally know. um and anyway it got to the point where he was exhausted. We had been up for, he had been up for 20 hours. So he ended up sleeping because he thought I'll get some sleep. And then if she still can't settle her, then I'll, you know, we'll do it in shifts. There's no point in both of us just being exhausted. Um, And anyway, she thankfully went to sleep shortly after he did. 
and I was just so relieved because I had had 21 hours of being awake. I hadn't had much sleep the night before because I had the balloon in and it wasn't very comfortable and I had given birth. I was exhausted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and anyway, I continued, I guess, in that postpartum haze and the first two weeks my daughter would cry for about six hours straight, nonstop, would just cry. I would do everything I could to settle her. I would feed her, rock her, burp her, change her. You do the whole list that they kind of give you of what could be wrong. And she just wouldn't settle and she would just cry for at least six hours. And we were Googling everything, like what could be wrong? I don't know. And it was really overwhelming. And there was one day where she cried for 10 hours and I just felt awful. She cried from 3 p.m. till 1 a.m. And my husband and I just took it in turns of trying to settle her and we just couldn't. She was inconsolable. And we ended up finding out because she had these symptoms and they weren't making sense. And I said to my husband, I know newborns cry a lot. I wasn't naive when I had a baby and thought, oh, they'll never cry. But surely this is excessive. Surely Mm. this isn't right. And I felt like I didn't have much postpartum support. They kind of just threw me and said, here's a child health clinic. They have walk-ins on once a week. And I think when you're in that postpartum haze, a week is actually a really long time. If you're struggling with feeding a baby, a week is ages. And anyway, I got her checked out um, at two weeks and we realized that she hadn't really gained weight and she had all these symptoms. And I remember telling one of my aunts about it and she's like, I think she has a tongue tie. And I was like, nah, she can stick her tongue out. She's fine. Like I totally disregarded it. And I was like, no, maybe she's got a dairy allergy. Do I need to cut dairy out of my diet? Like I was just researching and just trying to find what the solution was we tried like Infocol and other things that people threw at us. Like everyone had advice and none of it, like it was all contradictory. Some people said, oh, Infocol works great. Other people said, nah, it's a waste of money. Like, and you're just trying to do the right thing. You're just trying to solve the problem and it's really overwhelming. And anyway, my aunt really kept pushing that she had a tongue tied. I just brushed her off. And then she started explaining the symptoms her children had when they had their tongue ties. And I was like, oh, wait a second, maybe maybe there's something to this. And I took her to a child health nurse and I was quite lucky because I know there's a lot of health professionals that brush off tongue ties. And thankfully this nurse didn't and she assessed her and she said she actually has a very restrictive tongue tie. This was something that wasn't looked at at the hospital. They just pushed me out. And so she had a tongue tie and we got her in at four weeks to get the ties resolved And I was so anxious because there's so much conflicting information about ties and I try to have evidence-based practice, I think. And it was hard because there was mixed information and ultimately I just had to make the decision of let's try this because obviously she's not coping and things aren't right and it's making me not cope either. So we got her tongues released, sorry, her ties released And the difference was insane. They latched her straight after. And I didn't realize that breastfeeding was meant to be completely painless. I didn't think I was in pain when I was feeding her, but it was definite discomfort. And I just thought, oh, this is what breastfeeding is. I didn't know any different. But when they latched her on immediately after, I was shocked because I was like, oh, is this, is this really how it's been meant? Like, was this how it's meant to be this whole time? 
Um, and that was amazing. That was huge. And so my supply had started to drop off because her ties hadn't been released and that was stressful. So I was trying to maintain a supply before her appointment and um, I stopped giving her the bottle to try and just keep stimulating to, you know, supply and demand. And after her ties release, were released and I felt comfortable in my supply again, I tried to introduce a bottle to her and she just would not take it. She's seven months now and she still will not take a bottle. And I think that added an element of difficulty as well because it's hard when you're the sole person that your baby needs and it's hard because you end up needing a break but also feeling like you can't ask for one because no one else can provide what she needs. And, I mean, I would sometimes give it to my husband for an hour but it was really difficult because I was always worried, is she screaming? Is she hungry? Is she more hungry today than what she usually is? And it was really difficult to just not get that break and to just not have that ability to do that. I ended up joining a gym actually so that I could put her in a creche for like 45 minutes and just know that even if she was crying, I was nearby and I could end up soothing her. And that honestly saved my mental health. I hated Mm. working out before, but it gave me that hour to myself where I could do something for me. And that ended up helping me manage anxiety uh, just with exercising. And that was a huge revelation for me, I think. Well, I was going to ask because the anxiety was quite acute and heightened in your pregnancy. How was that postpartum? It was definitely still high. Um, I think there's a lot of information about SIDS, which is great. Uh, I think a lot of information needs to be out there because it is a problem. But when you have issues with anxiety, it just made me so much worse and I spiraled. And thankfully by then I was able to receive counselling and that helped immensely. And I was just so worried all the time that I would go to her bassinet and she wouldn't be breathing. And I remember one morning I woke up before her and she was so quiet and I couldn't bring myself to look over the bassinet because it was, I guess, like Schrodinger's cat where, you know, you open the box and you don't know if the cat's alive or dead. And I just couldn't bring myself to think that maybe the reality was was that she wasn't alive. That scared me. Um, and then she started making noise and I was like, oh, okay, she's fine. Um but it was just that constant, I guess, holding my breath, like mm. worry, so, so worried. And thankfully I was able to talk it through with my counselor and I was following the recommendations and she did explain like with education and with following those recommendations, the risk has gone down quite significantly. So I just had to take comfort in that because there was nothing else that I could do. I had done everything in my power. Now she's seven months. And I feel a lot more relaxed. I think we're a bit more comfortable. We've kind of started to settle into a routine. I almost don't want to say that because I swear every time I say that she changes. <laughs> but um, it, things are starting to feel a bit more comfortable now. And I, I think I have a bit more confidence in myself as a mum. And I know that I've made choices that are right for her and that she's as safe as I can make her. And I think it's hard to acknowledge that I don't have full control over everything, 
but everything that is in my control, I've tried my best to minimize risks. And so I at least know that I've done that. Mm. So <laughs> yeah, it, it depends. Some some days it still gets to me, but for the most part, I'd say I'm I'm coping pretty well. I mean, seven months, that's like still really not a very long time since your pregnancy and birth. And you've also been through quite a lot. So I imagine that it takes a lot of time to sort of undo and unwind those things. And particularly if you've lived with anxiety for a really long time. So give yourself grace. You're doing a great job. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It, I do struggle because so many people say, you know, trust your gut. When your mum, you have a mother's intuition and you know when something's wrong, when something's right. And it's really difficult though when you've lived with anxiety because when you live, lived with anxiety, you have been t- like your brain tells you that something's wrong all the time or yeah. what if something could be wrong. So I guess it's really hard to sift through and find what is intuition and what is just overly anxious thoughts. Yeah. And that's actually such a great point because, <laughs> um, yeah, we do talk about maternal instincts and all that, just growing into a mother and being the mother that you want to be and the things that you value. But if you struggle to decipher what's anxiety and what's intuition, like that's a really, like it's a rocky road to walk exactly. along. You know? And when you yeah. have, if you have providers that are gaslighting you during mm. that process, mm. it just makes it so much more difficult. And I think luckily that child health nurse that recognized that she also had a tie helped me a lot because it allowed me to know, yep, okay, we need to get this resolved. And making that decision to get it resolved was really difficult because I was worried, like, I didn't want to traumatize her, which I know she's a baby and she won't actually remember it, but I think your body does hold on to trauma. And I was really worried about inflicting pain on her. I knew it was going to benefit her long-term, but I really had to outweigh that, that risks and benefits and just really, I guess, write up a list and think, okay, will this actually help her long-term? Is this actually something she needs? And the fact that she wasn't gaining weight was a big, yes, okay, we need to go through with it. But yeah. I really struggled and that anxiety mani- like manifested in anger. I had a lot of anger in that time in the lead up to that decision. And I remember afterwards she was in a lot of pain and was crying and I felt so guilty that I felt really dis- I felt completely disconnected from her. And that also really scared me because I was really worried that I wouldn't be able to reconnect after after that experience. And thankfully we did. We got through it and, you know, going to counselling helped me acknowledge that that anger was really just my anxiety manifesting in that way. And that disconnect, I think, was me trying to cope with feeling guilty, like, oh, no, maybe I've made the wrong decision. And I ended up seeing her heal and I ended up seeing her thrive after that decision. So that helped me reconnect with her. But it was really scary to feel that disconnect. Mm. Wow. You had been through a lot in such a short period of time. So I can understand why things were heightened. And uh, I mean, even just with how you describe the anxiety that you were feeling like catastrophizing everything and like that that was kind of like your go-to all the time but it's like yeah I I can see why though as well um yeah so that was just like a lot in such a short period of time 
Yeah. Sometimes I, it's like, oh, am I just my own worst enemy or is there actually a lot that's happening? <laughs> oh, I know. And it's funny, hey, because when you're in it, you're sort of just surviving. But then it's like when you can actually take a breath and look back in hindsight, it's always such a wonderful thing. Yeah, exactly. You can start to pull it apart a bit more and yeah, and understand it. A lot of the time I often find, I'm sure you've heard the term matrescence before. So with this transition into motherhood, like from your preconception journey right to now, where do you think things have changed for you? Do you feel like a different person? I feel like a totally different person. And Mm. in some ways I think that's great. And in other ways I kind of miss the person I was before. I love my daughter to bits and I'm so grateful to be a mum. and sometimes though it's just difficult because it feels like it's your only identity especially when you can't get that support and you can't get someone else to help you you just kind of get stuck into mum mode and so I think that's been a bit challenging to navigate um and also I think loss changes you and mm. I think that's been the biggest thing I love my first baby as well um but I think going through loss kind of makes you feel a bit jaded and it changes your perception of the world. And I think we talk about having children, like it's adopting a dog, like how many kids do you want to have? And, you know, people have, you know, I want to have three, I want to have six, I want to have one, you know, and everyone has it in their mind that they're going to choose it and it's going to be how they envision it, that you're going to have a two-year gap if that's what you want. And I think going through my miscarriage made me realize that it's not something that you get to really pick and choose. Some people have been able to, and they're super fortunate. And I don't think I realized that that's actually a really a big blessing if you're able to be able to do that. That's a really, uh, I can't really find the word that I'm searching for, but it's not common. And I guess it's taken for granted because... I had planned out that I was going to have a winter baby and, you know, that was my plan because I didn't want to be pregnant over summer. That was my goal. Everything was going well, but it didn't end up panning out that way. And I guess with life, no matter how well you plan things out, it doesn't matter because sometimes life just derails you anyway. I can tell you're still kind of in this. Like, you know, like I said, she's only seven months old. We're still in early days. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. But I do want to ask if you could go back to that Brianna in those initial struggles, so say miscarriage and second pregnancy, what would you say to her? I think that's really difficult because in all honesty, I don't think words would have consoled me at the time. I think I probably would have just given myself a hug. I think that's what I needed because there's nothing that you can really say that's going to fix it. I think it's just acknowledging that there's pain there and acknowledging that it's real and validating that and just having compassion on on yourself. I think that's the only thing you can really do. Yeah, self-compassion. It's a superpower. Absolutely. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Absolutely. I have loved talking with you. I have learned a lot from you as well. I always do in these conversations and I appreciate them so much. So I appreciate you coming on and being so vulnerable and opening and open to sharing. And I just know that this will resonate with so many people. So thank you, Brianna. 
thank you so much i really appreciate like being able to do this and i i love what you do i think it's awesome so good on you Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're listening and would like to share your story with us or feel compelled to talk about issues surrounding women's health, please don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. You can find us at The Power of Birth on Instagram and Facebook or on our website, thepowerofbirth.net. If you loved this episode, we would love it if you left us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and share us with your family and friends. The conversation has to start somewhere. Thank you again for listening and we hope you join us in the next episode.